All right, Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We have been studying the uh, messages that Jesus has for the seven churches that the letter of Revelation was given to, that John sent it to. We've covered five of those seven messages uh, thus far. And, uh, you know, we've seen some things that churches were doing good that we should aspire to, and then we've seen some things that churches were doing that we need to avoid, right? Well, we come now to the sixth church, Philadelphia, and Philadelphia is one of only two churches of the seven that Jesus doesn't offer any rebuke, no correction. Um, he only has good things to say. Uh, and that means that they're a great example of, of who we should be as a church. But you know, Philadelphia is a bit more than that because in the midst of all these commendations that he gives, Jesus also gives uh, two powerful blessings uh, to the church of Philadelphia. And, And these blessings empowered those Christians to reach their city in in an impactful way. And so uh, because of that, they're more than just an example. They're a church to emulate. They're a church to aspire to be. And of all the seven churches, I would say my heart is that I would want to be like the church of Philadelphia. So let's begin to dig in. Uh, we're not going to get through it all today. There's a lot here um, to cover. I think it's really important, especially if this is the church that we should be aspiring to be, um, then we want to learn it. So we're going to start and we'll see how far we get. So chapter 3 will begin in verse 7. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, these things says he that is holy, He that is true, he that has the key of David, he that opens and no man shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, and no no man can shut it. For you have a little strength, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before your feet. And to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my patience, I also will keep you from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which you have, that no man take your crown. We start off here, and it mentions that this is the message to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, the pastor, the leader there at the church in Philadelphia. And if we put the map up there, you'll see where Philadelphia is located. It'll be the big circle on your right above the little circle of Laodicea, appropriately. It says, these things says he that is holy, he that is true. Now, Philadelphia, this was a city that was set amidst uh, vast vineyards. Um, Its patron deity in the city was uh, Dionysius, the Greek god of winemaking, wine drinking, and therefore fertility and freedom because that often accompanies wine drinking. Um, He was known as the great liberator uh, because his wine and the music that accompanied it, the dances that uh, his followers did freed them from fear and worry and it subverted the oppressive restraints of the powerful. Basically, it was a way that they could say, you can't stop us, no one can give us rules, we are free. Um, And that was the mindset of the city. 
Uh, it was founded by the king of Pergamum uh, for the purpose of spreading Greek culture and Greek thinking through the region. It led one historian to call the city the missionary city and not necessarily because of Christianity. Um, it was the Greek missionary city that spread Greek philosophy, Greek thinking throughout the entire region. Now, unfortunately, Philadelphia was heavily damaged by an earthquake in 17 AD, and that earthquake was followed by dangerous tremors for the next 20 years, each one of them debilitating the city even further. So this was a city that was constantly in, uh, in fear, constantly having to flee the city when the tremors would come uh, to stay safe, and then to come back and rebuild whatever was destroyed. So this is the, the city that had this church was, was found in, and and Jesus, as he's writing all these letters, he's giving these messages, he follows a pattern. He starts off by giving a reminder of who he is, his character. Uh, then he'll give a commendation if they did anything good, a rebuke if they did anything wrong, and then he'll give them uh, some promises at the very end if they will overcome. Well, here we see Jesus' commendation. I'm, I'm sorry, here we see Jesus' character first, and it says, these things says he that is holy, he that is true. Um, he that has the key of David that opens doors that no man can shut, shuts them, and uh, no man can open them. The fact that Jesus reminds here that he is holy is interesting because most of the time the reminders have been kind of calling us back to the vision that John saw. Remember, John saw Jesus with the eyes of fire, the sword coming out of his mouth, and frequently when he gives his description of his character or reminder of his character, he references back to that. However, to the church of Philadelphia, there's, there's no reference back here. The fact that Jesus is holy, that he's true, that he has the key of David is not mentioned in chapter one. So it's interesting that Jesus doesn't reference any of those things here, but he references other things about his character. Now that Jesus is holy, it means he is pure. He is separate from evil. He's different than us. He's not, our, he's not a created being. He is the creator. It's a, 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 um, a description of deity, a description of perfectness. He also describes himself as he that is true. Now, in, in the Greek language, you're, there are two words for true. One means true as opposed to false, and then the other one means true as opposed to fake. And that's what the word is here, true as opposed to fake. It means that which is real, that which is genuine, that which is not imaginary. And so Jesus reminds them, I'm the holy one, I'm pure, I am distinct from, from my creation, but I am also real, you know? Because sometimes when you think about these things, it seems too good to be true. You know, I'm in the book of Genesis in my devotions right now, but I was in the book of Revelation. And, and, and I was coming to the end, and you start reading about some of these things. And, it, and as you read it, you know, your brain starts to say it almost seems too fantastical, you know? You know, that, that there's just no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering, streets of gold, all these types of things, you know? And, and there are times when, you know, our fallen common sense likes to think, well, that, that just seems like a fairy tale. And... and and yet the Lord reminds us, he goes, there's no fairy tale here. This is real. This is true. I'm genuine. I am what's real. It's so important for us to do that because, you know, that's, that's where faith comes in. You know, faith comes in when, when our, everything in what we know and what we think we are have expertise on says, no, that can't possibly be. And we decide to go, well, Actually, I don't know everything, and I don't have a grip on everything, and the one who made everything does know everything, and he, he is all-powerful, and therefore, you know, he can reveal things to us, and he'll be correct when he does, as opposed to me trying to understand what's going on around me. 
I am not all-knowing. I am not perfect. I frequently misunderstand what's going on around me. God made it. So he never misunderstands what's going on, you know, around him. He is the one that is real and genuine. Now, next Jesus mentions that he is the one that has the key of David, he that opens and no man shuts and shuts and no man opens. Now, here Jesus is making a direct reference to Isaiah chapter 22:22, where it is in reference to a man named Eliakim, who was the king's steward. Now, the king's treasurer is what that means. He was the king's steward. He was in charge of all the king's possessions. So if you needed money for a project that the king had assigned to you, you'd go to this guy, and he would had the key to the family line of David's resources, okay? But what's interesting, if you get the context of Isaiah 22, Isaiah 22 is not an explanation of what the king's steward does. Isaiah 22 is God's indictment against Israel because he was bringing the Babylonians to discipline them, but instead of repenting, they were throwing end-of-the-world parties. They were, they were, you know, they, they were singing that song, it's the end of the world, we know it, you know, and I feel fine, you know. That's what they were doing. Look at verse uh, 20, Isaiah 22. I'll read it to you, verses 12 and 13. The Lord says, In that day did the Lord God of hosts call to weeping, for mourning, to baldness, to girding with sackcloth, all signs of repentance. But behold, what does he find? Joy and gladness, slaying oxen, killing sheep, eating flesh, drinking wine. And they're saying, Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. That was the attitude. So it's interesting that the Lord here, when we go through this, he says, because you won't repent, then you're going to experience a judgment, not just discipline, but judgment. And, and so one of the judgments is going to come upon, I think, a man named Shebna. I don't remember exactly, but he was currently the king's steward. The Lord says, you're going to be killed. You, you're, you're, you think you're just going to go to prison or you're going to be taken off somewhere? No, no, you're not going to Babylon in prison. I'm, I'm going to take your life. He was a wicked man who did not, was not a good example to the people, was part of the poor example of leadership that was in the king's, you know, uh, group of leaders. And he says, I'm going to give that role to a godly man named Eliakim, and he'll have the key of David. And when he opens, no man shall shut, and when he shuts, no man shall open. In Isaiah 22, 22, and the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, so he shall open and none shall shut, he shall shut and none shall open. But if you read the rest of the passage, you can see that it's not just talking about Eliakim, it's talking about Messiah and how he will ultimately be the one who is that steward, that treasure of the father, the true king's possessions, and he's the access point. He's the one who gives us access to all the father's blessings and treasures. Now, in addition to this, I think it's interesting because Paul quotes Isaiah 22, 12, and 13 in 1 Corinthians 15, 32 to describe the approach to life that someone has when they don't believe in an afterlife. He says, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's it. Here and now is all there is. Here and now is where we invest. Well, that was the mentality of Philadelphia. It was the mentality of Greek society. If I can't see it, if I can't touch it, if I can't understand it, well, then it's not important. They believed and. and, and this idea came from first from Plato. Plato taught that we lost heaven, that we were cast down to earth. And as we were cast down to earth, humanity, we lost all the knowledge of truth and of goodness and, 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 and heaven. And so our job was to pursue understanding these things uh, through having experiences uh, with the divine. And 
Aristotle, is, one of his prized pupils came along and he said, that's not true. He says, we don't need to have these experiences. He says, we just need to logic it out. And thus was born, really, Greek philosophy, this idea that we have the ability to logic it all out and figure it all out, to get all our ducks in a row, and we can know exactly, we don't need heaven, we can bring it here by creating it ourselves through figuring it out logically. And, of course, then they killed Aristotle because that was heresy. But that idea, that permeated Greek philosophy, it permeated the Greek mindset, Greek culture. And so... The idea here was, is, well, then, you know, what is worship really about? It's about touch, experience. It's about, you know, making sense of life in your own way. And the worship of Dionysius there in Philadelphia provided ample activities to live life to the fullest, to eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. And so when Jesus says that he's the Eliakim, he's the one that has the key of David. What he's saying is, is you have these, these teachers in your city who are saying, this is how you live life. This is what life's about. And he's going, I have the key to real life. I have the key to what's genuine. I have the only key to real living. An eternal life that starts now and that will go on for an eternity with me. Jesus is reminding the church at Philadelphia, you trusted me about that. And you rejected the lie of Dionysius. So keep trusting me, you know? I have the keys of death and the grave. You already possess the best a person can have, you know? The best part of waking up is not folders in your cup. It's Jesus, I am my beloved's and he is mine. I did that in first service and everybody looked at me and I'm like, you don't know what folders is? It's like, come on, folks. The church in Philadelphia, they had bought into what Jesus claimed to be. And he says, keep holding on to that. Don't forget that. You already have the best that a person can have. Now, I love the fact here that Jesus says that I'm the one who opens and no man can shut. When I shut it, no man can open it. It is very comforting to know that Jesus is in charge. Amen? It is. Now, I don't always feel that way. You know, maybe you've never done this, but I know, you know, there are times when I, in my life, I see an open door, right? And you look through and you think, this is awesome, Lord, this is you, this is great. And then as you walk to go through it, all of a sudden the Lord goes, clunk. Right? Am I the only one who's been there? And, 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 you know, we can do some interesting things in that moment. We can look up and we can go, why? You know, it was beautiful on the other side of that door. It was a good door to go through. Why did you shut it, you know? We can try to bang the door down because we, we think, well, Lord, you certainly made a mistake, so I need to go through that thing. We can complain, we can whine, we can cry, we can revolt. But the Lord says, hey, I'm the one who shuts doors and nobody can open them. And that means if he shuts a door, going through the door is not good for me, Right? That's comforting to know. It's comforting to know because when that happens a lot of times, it doesn't make sense. And so it's comforting to know, okay, Lord, if you shut this door, it means going through it wasn't good for me. It's also very comforting to know that when he opens a door and I look in and I go, I don't want to go in there. That path looks scary. There's a big sign right in front of the door that says valley of the shadow of death. Or maybe it just says valley of death and Jesus is the only one that knows it's just the shadow of death. 
It's also very comforting to know that I can trust he's taking care of me as I walk through that door. Jesus, he says, all authority and all power is given unto me. Do you believe that? Or do you think everything depends on you? You know, Beverly will tell me sometimes when I get in my little pouts and think, oh, I messed up, I blew it, everything's gonna blow up. And she's like, do you really think you're that important? <laughs> I'm so grateful for that. It's a good jolt. It's a good wake-up reminder, you know? You're not that important. God's so much bigger than you. You know, everything doesn't depend upon you. He's the one who has all authority and all power. And in light of that, do you trust his leadership in your life to open the doors that you need to go through and to shut the ones that you don't? It's very comforting when we rest in that. Now, Jesus, after reminding them of his character, because one of these doors is gonna be scary for them that he's gonna open. We're gonna read that in a second. He reminds them of his character, and now he gets to the commendation. He says, listen, verse eight, I know your works. Now, before he gets into what those works are, he pronounces a blessing. The works are, for you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. That's the good things they were doing. But before he gets into that, he says, behold, I have set before you an open door, and no man can shut it. I told you, I'm the one that, that opens doors no man can shut. Well, I've given you one. I have set before you an open door that no man can shut. I know your works. I know the good things you're doing. And in light of that, I have set before you an open door. Now, the word there, set, means to give as a gift. So Jesus was supernaturally, not was, he did something supernaturally in Philadelphia. He set before them an open door. He gave them as a gift an open door that no man could shut. Now, what is this specific open door that the Lord gave to them? Well, I don't know for sure, but I can say this. This phrase, an open door from the Lord, is used four other times in Scripture to refer to people being receptive to the gospel. So we'll see shortly that that the church of Philadelphia did have adversaries in verse 9. They had adversaries. But despite this, Jesus tells them that he is working in the hearts of this people in the city of Philadelphia in a special way, and the fields were ready to be harvested, that they needed to walk through that door, step out in faith, and trust him that he had much people in that city. Now, this is very similar to what Paul experienced in the city of Corinth. Now, Paul, when he came to Europe, the Lord called him. He had a vision of a man uh, from Europe, Macedonia, saying, come over here when he was in Troas. Paul was trying to press deeper into Asia, to go east. And, and the Lord kept putting obstacles in his path. And it said, the spirit wouldn't let me go that way. And they kept going west. Well, finally, they're at the city of Troas, which is right on the coast. If you keep going west, then you have to go on a boat to get to Europe. And so there, the Lord told them, I want you to go to Europe. Praise the Lord, we're gonna go to new ground. Well, he does, and it goes abysmally. Like, he can't last in a city for more than a month because he keeps getting chased out because the persecution's so fierce. He spends, a, he gets whipped, he gets beaten, spends a night in a, uh, uh, in a jail in Philippi. It is not good. And Paul is so discouraged by the time he gets to Corinth. When he gets there, he describes to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that he was pressed out of measure so much. He was squeezed so much. He was under so much stress that he and his team wanted to just die. They were done. And so he gets there, and if you read Acts 18, you read it in our scripture reading, it says 
things didn't start off good there either. He meets this couple that, that are, are followers of Jesus. They are believers, uh, Aquila and Priscilla, and they're tent makers, and they hit it off. They, they go into business together there in Corinth. He stays with them. Uh, his whole ministry team is still hasn't come to Corinth yet because everybody's been on the run. And so he goes into the synagogue like Paul normally does. He starts teaching. He's a rabbi. He starts teaching them the scriptures and stuff. And things are going well. But then it says Timothy, and, and I can't remember who the other guy was, they arrive in Corinth, and he just, he starts feeling the fire. And he's like, I need to tell him Jesus is the Messiah. I need to preach the gospel. And so that next time the synagogue meets, he goes and he starts preaching the gospel, tells them about Jesus, and they don't want to hear it. They reject his message, and they begin to blaspheme the, the Lord. They begin to say, Paul, you're a false teacher. Jesus isn't the Messiah. And Paul, he says, I'm done. He says, I am done. I am clean of the blood of all men because I have preach the truth to you, but you don't want to hear it. I'm done preaching to my own people. I'm just going to the Gentiles from now on. I love Paul. Very human. Because then it mentions he goes and he stays at the house of the guy who lived right next to the synagogue. He was upset. He was frustrated. He was scared. He was tired of running. And that night, the Lord came to him and said, Paul, I need you to explain something to you. In Acts 18, I think it's verse 11, the Lord says, Paul, don't be afraid. Verse 9, don't be afraid, but speak and don't hold your peace. Don't be silent. Go and preach the gospel. For I am with you and no man's going to set on you to hurt you because I have much people in this city. And where Paul was not able to stay even a month in most places he'd been to prior to Corinth, it's as he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. A beautiful ministry was born. This is a similar experience to what Paul had in Ephesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 8 and 9, Paul explains how things were going in Ephesus. He says, but I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great door, an effectual one, is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. Same thing. Lots of adversaries, but God had given an open door. And we find the same thing here in Philadelphia. Now, this is interesting because when he says, I have set before thee an open door, the word thee there is singular. This is not a blessing that God gave, uh, that Jesus gave to any of the other six churches that are listed here. This was unique to Philadelphia. So the question we have to ask is, why them? Well, What else is interesting about this is when it says, I have set before you an open door, I explain that that word set means to give as a gift. But it's not the same word used for God's gifts of grace. There is a reason that Jesus gave them this blessing. You see, Philadelphia had something else in common with Corinth and with Ephesus, uh, two other open doors that God gave. There was an emphasis on the word of God. He says, I am doing this because you have, the word for means because, because you have a little strength, three things. You have a little strength, you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. Now listen, some blessings of God are just, they're absolutely free. The Lord just does it. He just does it because he loves us, because he's gracious, and he just does it. But some of the Lord's blessings have conditions. They just do. If I realize that there, there are those who say, no, 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 it's all grace, it's all this. But the Bible does not teach that. The Bible, if you are, you are not reading a Bible, if you believe that, the Bible teaches that there are some promises, that there are some blessings that are conditional. You know, For example, when Paul was on the boat that was going down, 
uh, the, uh, that was being, you know, in the storm and, he, and was going down. The Lord, everybody's worried, and the Lord told Paul, he said, don't be afraid. No one will die. Well, he goes out and he tells the crew, don't worry, I have prayed, and the Lord has said, no one's going to die. So we're going to be okay. Well, some of the crew said, yeah, right. And they were getting into one of the little side boats to get off into that. And the Lord tells Paul, he says, if those guys get in another boat, they will die. And so Paul goes to the captain of the ship and he says, you need to tell your crew that if anybody leaves this ship, the promise is only for those who stay here on the ship. If they get off the ship, they will die. That's a conditional promise, a conditional blessing. So there are promises of God. There are blessings that are conditional upon an area of obedience in our part. So that means that there are things that we can do as Christians, as church, to put ourselves in a position to receive such an open door from God. This, there's no guarantee. God isn't, you know, it's not like God has this thing out there and goes, if you stay in the boat, you'll never die, period. You know, I mean, his, his promises are unique, obviously, when we talk about him in this way. He didn't set this open door before every church. He didn't say, now listen, Smyrna, you know, if you can just do what Philadelphia is doing, you can have an open door too. That's not the point. We don't operate on formulas like that. That's a, that is legalism. We don't operate like that. However, there are things we can do to put ourselves in a position to receive such an open door from the Lord if he chooses by his grace to do that. And we do that by doing the same three things Philadelphia was doing. Jesus says, I know your works. And the first thing he says is they are, you have a little strength. The word their strength is that word dunamis in the Greek, power, you know, dynamite. Now, he didn't say they had great strength. He says you have a little strength. Unlike Samson, who had great strength but poor dependability, these Christians in Philadelphia, they had little political power in their city, little economic power, but they had great faithfulness. And you know what? That made them wonderfully empty vessels for Jesus to fill with his unlimited strength. You know, Jesus says, all authority, all power is given unto me, and he can give it to us as he pleases, you know? He, he has said to us, he said, you know, I, I have, Paul explained it, he said, you know, I, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. You know, we're, we're a bunch of clay pots. Most of us are crack pots. But he has taken this beautiful treasure and he's placed it inside of us. You know, his gospel, his word, the responsibility to shine for him, right? He's given that to us. What an awesome thing. So, you know, he has everything, and, and we have nothing, but if we let him fill us, then we have everything we need to do what he's called us to do. And that's what it means to have a little strength. The Christians in Philadelphia, the church in Philadelphia, was truly a humble church. You know, they didn't seek fame. They didn't seek fortune or, you know, any other type of power, whether it was political or socioeconomic they knew they had nothing to offer the world in and of themselves. They truly believed Jesus' first kingdom principle of Matthew 5, verse 3, that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you and I believe that? That Jesus has everything, I have nothing, and if I just let him fill me, then I can be a vessel that he can pour through in an unlimited fashion. That's the way, the outlook we need to have. You know, lots of times, you know, I'll have folks who will come to me and they'll say, you know, Pastor, well, I think God wants me to do this, but I just can't see God using me that way. 
You know, what I, what I want to say to him is, yeah, me neither. Not because I want to be mean, but because let's just drop that whole ideology, that's, that mindset. God doesn't pick people because they're able. He picks people because he's able. You know, he, he picks people that he just says, will you be willing? Will you let me fill you? Will you be a vessel that I can shine through? That's why it's not so bad being a cracked pot. The light can shine through it. They were humble and said, God, I'll be, a, I'll be a vessel that you can pour your treasure into. Lord, I know I can't do anything. I don't have anything to offer the, the people of Philadelphia, but you do. And if you'll use me, you can have me. Take me and spend me for your glory. The second thing that Jesus commended them for is he says, you also have kept my word. The word they're kept means to continue to obey orders. They continue to obey the orders of his word, his, his message, his gospel, his teaching, the scriptures. They continue to obey what was in the scriptures. Now, it's kind of a given that if you're going to obey God's word, you need to know what it says, right? I know that may seem like, well, obviously, you know, Pastor Will, but I bring it up because I would say more than ever in the last 10 years, I am seeing people write things or hearing people say things like this. Well, you know, like the Bible teaches, and then they'll say something that the Bible hasn't, doesn't say anything about that, you know? Um, it is very odd at times. I don't know how to respond when I hear those things because I'm thinking, I'm going, I know I don't know everything in the Bible, but I, I don't remember ever reading anything like that. And, and so I'll ask them, I'll say, well, where does the Bible say that? Because I don't, I don't ever recall you know, the Bible saying that. Maybe I'm missing something. And of course, they, they don't know because it's not in the Bible. So where did they hear that? Where, where, did, where did they get that idea? Well, they've heard from people who are in authority positions who speak for the Lord, and, and yet they don't teach the Bible, and because they don't teach the Bible and speak for the Lord, and the Bible is associated with Christianity, folks who hear what they have to say assume it's in the Bible. And these things get said over and over and over and over again so much that people just presume, well, you know, like the Bible says. You know, for example, one of the things that's always, you know, my whole life I've heard people say, well, you know, like the Bible says, is this one, God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. In fact, it's heretical. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps those who are poor in spirit and cry out to him for help. But that's probably, if you ask, like you ever polls are done and say, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? That's usually number one or number two. There are things that people have said who are an authority. And, and there's tons of these things being, I've, I've noticed it more in the last 10 years. I, I have to say, where does the Bible say that? Because I don't, I don't recall where it says that. And then, of course, they can't point it out. So if we're going to obey what God says, then we need to get correct. We need to know what he says, what his word has to say. And so the fact that they were keeping his word means they had put an emphasis upon knowing the scriptures, understanding the scriptures, teaching the scriptures. Now, that's something that they had in common with Corinth and with Ephesus, because that's what happened in Corinth. In Acts chapter 18, verse 11, it says that after the Lord told Paul, don't be afraid, I've got many people in the city, and he continued there for six, a year and six months. They'd only been for a month in other places. But notice what it says, teaching the scriptures. Acts 18, 11 says that. If you look at Corinth, uh, uh, when, not Corinth, but Ephesus, when Paul got there, 
two particular verses stand out in the book of Acts about how he invested his time there in Corinth, this other place that had an open door. In, I'm sorry, not Corinth, Ephesus. In Acts chapter 19, verse 10, it says, and this continued by the space of two years. What continued? Well, it mentions that he was teaching. He went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. And then when their hearts were hardened, they didn't believe, and they spoke evil of Christianity, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. He was teaching and instructing in the word of God. And it tells us how we know that it was the word of God, for it says, this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus. You go down to verse 20 in Acts 19, same thing in Ephesus. He was there for three and three, almost three years. It says in verse 20, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. So in all three of these churches, we see this similarity that there was an emphasis upon the teaching of the scriptures. It happened in Corinth, it happened in Ephesus, it was going on in Philadelphia. All three had this open door. Isn't that interesting? How important it is to stick to God's word. It's that one steady anchor in every situation. You know, there are many things that can be an anchor to us in situations. If you have family, loved ones, friends, you know, your church, there are a lot of things that are an anchor in many situations, but there's only one anchor in every situation, and it's the Lord's word. You know, we talk about the Lord being our anchor, that he's that one steady thing, but how is he that anchor? Well, it tells us in Hebrews 6, the verse that we, we sing in songs, that, you know, the reason people write songs about God being our anchor, it explains why he is our anchor. In Hebrews chapter 6, if you'll turn there with me, in verses 17 through 19, the whole reason that Paul, or I think it's Paul, who knows who wrote Hebrews, doesn't tell us. But the whole reason that the writer of Hebrews says what he says in verses 17 through 19 is because the believers he's writing to, these Jewish Christians, they were struggling, they were being persecuted, and they were thinking, I don't know if Jesus is worth it. And they were thinking of going back to Judaism, back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. And he writes to them and he says, there's nothing to go back to there. And so he's telling them that they need to not go backwards, they need to go forwards, they need to go on to maturity, they need to grow in the Lord, you know? And he assures them why it's worth pressing on because we have these awesome promises from the Lord. He says in Hebrews 6, verse 16, he says, for men, they verily swear by the greater and an oath of confirmation to them is an end of all arguments. You know, if, if they're gonna make, make this commitment, they're gonna enter into this relationship, how do they settle any disputes? Well, they, they make a commitment. They, they make an oath. They, they make promises to one another and they sign it on the dotted line. Well, in verse 17 of Hebrews 6, it says, in the same way, God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel, that he won't break his, break his promise, that, he, that he'll do what he says, he'll keep his part. He confirmed it by an oath. He confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things that in which it was impossible for God to lie, these promises that God gave to us, it's impossible for him to lie. It's impossible for God to fail. That's the other immutable thing. We might have a strong consolation, a strong hope 
who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters into that which is inside the veil, the holy of holies. What is the anchor? We have a hope that is an anchor of of our soul. What's the basis of our hope? God's word. It's his promise, his commands, his character, his works, all the things we see in the scripture. All of those things are the anchor that we can always cling to no matter what's going on around us. Are we sticking to God's word? Are you sticking to God's word? Philadelphia was. Well, the third thing that he commends them for is he says, you have also not denied my name. The word denied means to verbally renounce. You have not verbally renounced my name, my character, you know, who I am and and what I do, how I do things. You know, Philadelphia was called by many in that region the little Athens because of how many temples they had to so many gods. The Christians in Philadelphia, they could have dedicated themselves to anyone and anything they wanted to, but they had stuck with Jesus and they had stuck with Jesus' ways. That's what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. He said, I'm about to die, but it's okay because I fought a good fight. Literally, he says, I have fought the good fight. The word good there means the correct, the proper, the fitting, the right fight. Paul says, there's a lot of things I could have dedicated my life to, but I dedicated it to the right cause, the right fight. I would ask you this morning, what cause are you dedicated to? Are you dedicated to the right cause? Or does some other cause in your heart supersede Jesus? Listen, don't make the mistake of dedicating your life to any person and their ways above Jesus and his ways. Now, when I read this, it's very, very, very challenging because I want to be a church. I want Calvary Chapel to be, Orlando to be a church that positions ourselves for an open door from Jesus, don't you? Like, I want the Lord to do powerful things in Orlando. I want to see people saved. I want to see lives changed, don't you? So when I, I read this, I think to myself, Lord, I know you don't have to do any of those things. I know you haven't promised us that you would automatically do those things. If we do this, you do this. It doesn't work like that. I get that, Lord. But I do want to be in a position where if God did want to do that in Orlando, that he would use us and let us be a part of it, amen? So, you know, let's stay humble, you know? Let's cling to God's word and live it out, and let's dedicate ourselves to Jesus and his ways. Now, I read about a church like that, and I would, if I were to see a church that was doing those things, it impresses me. But some in the city of Philadelphia weren't very impressed with these Christians. And so Jesus, he says, I know about it, Behold, I will make them that are of the synagogue of Satan, verse 9. I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. I have read this verse many times in my life, of course, probably like you have too, and you read it and you go, huh? <laughs> you know, I mean, there's a couple things here that kind of, you know, catch your mind, you know. Um, what does it mean that they say they're Jews, but they're not? You know, we already saw the phrase synagogue of Satan when he was talking about the situation in Smyrna. Uh, we'll talk about that again in a second. But I mean, and what does it mean that they're going to worship before their feet? They're going to worship the Christians? I mean, what is, what is going on here, you know? Well, I think we have to remember the context. Remember, he's just said he's set before them an open door, right? And we've talked about how that open door, every time it's used in the New Testament in that way, is used to refer to people being receptive to the gospel. Well, it's almost like Jesus is saying when he says, behold, 
in light of what I've said to you, I've set before you an open door. He's, he's saying, I know you're looked down on for sticking to these important things, that you haven't denied my name, that the word of God's important to you, that you have, you stayed humble. I know you're looked down on for, for, for following me in these areas, but you need to know that I'm going to turn that around. I am going to make those who are of the synagogue of Satan. The phrase make there is the same exact word as set in verse 8. I'm going to give those who are of the synagogue of Satan as a gift. I'm going to do something supernatural in their lives. Now, who is the synagogue of Satan, the devil's synagogue? Well, there was no actual like synagogue of Satan there that said, hi, we're the devil's synagogue. Jesus used this phrase in the message to the church at Smyrna to describe the unbelieving Jews who persecuted the Christians in Smyrna. Unfortunately, in the early church, some of the most uh, fierce uh, persecutors of the early Christians were the unbelieving Jews, those who did not believe Christ was the Messiah. And, and so he, he clarifies that they are not following the Lord. They're not of the congregation of the Lord. Even though they go to synagogue, they're actually following our enemy right now. Now, what does it mean when it says, which say they are Jews and are not, but they're lying? Well, Paul in Romans said, in 9.6, he said, they are not all Israel who are called Israel. What Jesus and Paul are saying here is not that being Jewish is a spiritual thing and not a physical descent. That's not what they're saying. What they're saying is that being an Israelite had more meaning than just physical descent. Unless you are physically Jewish, you cannot come here saying, oh, I'm an Israelite. No, you're not. You're something else. You're, you're a dirty Gentile. Sorry. Saved, right? But you're a Gentile. But if you are Jewish here, being an Israelite is more than just being physically descended from Abraham. The word Israel means to be governed or ruled by God, or God is my prince, Israel, God is my prince. So what the Lord is saying here is, if you're going around mistreating Christians or murdering them, people who think differently than you, then God is certainly not the one who's in charge of your life. If you think it's okay to do that, God is not in charge of your life. He's not ruling you right now. And so he's saying that they're claiming to follow the Lord, but truth, they're not, because the Lord would never tell them to do something like that. Now, these unbelieving Jews justified such awful uh, mistreatment of Christians as being, were being zealous for God. They believed that those who had converted to Christianity were traitors to Judaism, traitors to Israel, traitors to Moses. And they believed that those traitors needed to be expunged. So they believed that their mistreatment, their murder of believers was them actually being zealous for the Lord. Paul used that lie. He told himself that lie when he was persecuting the church. In Philippians chapter 3, he explains that when these people were claiming to be uh, the Judaizers, they were uh, uh, false teachers in the early church who were saying, well, you know, we're really spiritual because we are, we're Christians, but we also follow Moses. And, and Paul says, <laughs> well, he says, they have, they, they have confidence in the flesh. He goes, we have no confidence in the flesh. We trust in the Lord completely. He goes, though, though, if I wanted to, I might also have confidence in the flesh. And if any other man thinks that he has whereof he might trust in the flesh, I have more than they do. Because I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. Our first king came from that tribe. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Concerning God's law, I was a Pharisee, man. I was the most righteous guy around. And concerning zeal, passion for God, I persecuted the church. That was the lie Paul told himself. And so that's why Jesus says, they claim to follow the Lord, but in their mistreatment of you, 
They are lying to themselves. Jesus, he is promising to them, listen, I'm going to expose this hatred for what it is, and I'm going to do it by showing you guys how much I love you. He says, look here, behold, I will make them to come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. See, they justified their persecution by saying, God hates these people. They're doing evil things. They're leading people away from Moses. And the Lord's going to say, no, I'm going to reveal to them how much I love you. And in the process, show them how much I love them. Not because of anything they do for me, but because I simply love them. Jesus would show these unbelievers that he was for the believers, not against them. And that would cause these unbelieving Jews to do a 180. They would now come and not worship them, but worship in the presence of their feet. The word there means they're going to bow down before the Lord in the presence of their feet. At church, as they're standing and praising in the Lord, these guys are going to be falling on their faces in repentance and getting saved. This, I believe, is the open door that Jesus was talking about. And I think he was urging them, keep on being faithful. Stick to the important things you've been doing because I will save these people and turn things around in your city. Isn't that an awesome promise? What a cool promise for our city if we, if we would have that. You know, what a great prayer to pray for our city. Lord, would you turn our city around? Would you save the people in our city? Would you give us an open door? Guys, to do that, if, to give us the best chance to experience that, we should emulate Philadelphia. So let's be those who rest in our Savior's love, right? That's what that he said. I'm going to show them how much I love you. Let's rest in our Savior's love. Guys, it's, it's so easy when persecution hits us or people attack us or whatever to respond in kind. But guys, we, we have the best life we can have. I am my beloved's and he is mine, Right? Who cares what the world says? Who cares what they do? Who cares what they say against us? If God be for us, who can be against us? Let's rest in our Savior's love, you know? And let's pray, pray, pray for revival. And in the meantime, whether God opens the door or not, let's pray, pray, pray for our city and let's stick to the most important things. Amen? It doesn't guarantee Jesus will give us this kind of an open door but I do believe it puts us in a position to receive such a blessing from the Lord. Don't you want that? That's what I want. I want that for us. I want that for you, for your sphere of influence and for our influence in the city of Orlando. Jesus loves everybody here. Doesn't matter who they are. Doesn't matter what they've done. Just like he loves you, he loves them. And they may be antagonistic towards you. They may be antagonistic towards the church or towards Jesus. He still loves them. And he wants to rescue them. So let's put ourselves in a place where he might use us to be a part of that. Let's all stand. There's a lot more left here for Philadelphia, but we wouldn't do it justice by rushing through it in 30 seconds. So next Sunday, come back. We'll go through the rest of the Church of Philadelphia. I tell you this, you know, my whole life, you know, as I learned the scriptures and I started to understand, you know, what it means to, to please the Lord, you know, I've always said, Lord, I want to be like Philadelphia. You know, and as a pastor, I've always said, Lord, I want our church to be like the church of Philadelphia. 
I hear people say all the time, you know, we need to get back to the way things were done in the early church. And I always kind of think, which one? I don't want to be like Corinth, you know, they were a mess, man, chaos. Ephesus, they had already left their first love. Laodicea, they were the lukewarm church. We'll do them in a few weeks if the Lord tarries. But if there's one church, early church, I do want to be like, I want to be like Philadelphia. This was a strong church. And they had a little strength. Not because they had great influence and power in their city. They had great strength because the Lord could be strength, their strength. They were clinging to his word. You know, as I was spending time with the Lord this week studying this, it was very challenging because sometimes you look out there and you think, Lord, how can we reach a city of this many people? And so many are so hard to your word. And Lord, you know, he just said, well, he said, can you be humble? Can you be a vessel I'll fill? Can you just be a little strong? I can do that. Can you teach my word? Cling to it. Do what it says. I can do that. It's not that complicated. And can you do things my way? Not deny my name. Not do it your way. Not do it the world's way. Sure, Lord. That's all I'm asking. That's all he's asking from you. And so this morning, you know, before we pray and we we sing, you know, maybe you're here and you say, I want that. <laughs> I want to I commit to that. I want to be an influence in my, my, my sphere around me, my work environment, my family environment, my neighborhood. You know, I, I want to be an influence in this city. I want God to give me an open door. Hey, I promise you God will, you know, all of a sudden start saving people left and right around you, but I, I can promise you that he wants you to be like Philadelphia. And if that's you this morning, you say, I want to make that fresh commitment to the Lord this morning. I want God to fill me with the Spirit. I want to be empowered to be like this church. I want, I'm making a decision today to cling to his word, to, to let him be a, ve- be a vessel he can fill and to do things his way. Just lift your hand because I'd like to pray with you if you're making that commitment this morning. Amen. 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 Lord, you see every hand that's lifted today to you and you see their desire to have an impact for you. Lord, I feel it too. You know, as I read through these things, I thought, Lord, I know I'm not having the greatest impact I could have. Lord, I know the problem's not you. So Lord, for all these folks here who are, have their hand raised, you see them all. As you've moved their heart to say, Lord, I'm making this fresh commitment to you to be a vessel you can fill, to be dedicated to your word and to be dedicated to your name, your way. Lord, will you fill them with your spirit? Will you give them what they need? Will you give them gifts that they need to impact, Lord, their sphere of influence? Lord, would you maybe, by your grace, just set an open door before us? We don't deserve it, Lord. We're not trying to earn it. We're just asking for you to give it as a gift. Lord, that we might see those around us worship before you. We love you, Lord. Rescue our city, we pray, and use us to be a part of it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.